We got as far as, essentially we got as far as 147. We really went over quite a few last time because I kind of bundled them. Um, we went from 141 pretty much all the way through to 147, which is quite impressive. It was all the Nirvikalpa, Sabakalpa, Samadhi. It was easier to just do them all at once. But I looked through it, and I think we covered them. So from 147 to 151, there's very little commentary. Um, I'm just going to read them through, and that will end the first book, the Samadhi Padha. 147 is, in the purity of um, Nirvichara, Nirvikalpa Samadhi, the Supreme Self shines. 4.8, in this state, one attains absolute consciousness. 4.9, this high truth is completely different from any knowledge or awareness gained by hearing about it, studying about it in scripture, or coming to it by a process of reasoning. 1.5.0, the awareness, I am free, which comes with this highest samadhi, eliminates all other impressions. When even this thought, this is 51, when even this thought, I am free, is eliminated, the soul attains seedless samadhi, moksha, or complete liberation. Those are beautiful ideas, aren't they? So what the whole first book, the Samadhi Padha, is, is talking to us about, even though it says now we come to the practice of yoga, it describes what that high state of consciousness is like, you know, increasingly bringing us through all the different stages to it until we are, even when even this thought, I am free, is eliminated. So it's really absolutely gorgeous to just read over and over and contemplate. Nothing else compares to it. But now we are actually in Sadhanapada, the second book, which is called The Way to Samadhi. So now we get into... Um, I think there's four books, if I'm not mistaken. The third book is Vipudapada. Um, yes, there's four books. But this one is Sadhana Padha, which means book, the, the way to samadhi. And this first one, is it was really interesting to me because I have personal, you know, everybody um, on the spiritual path gradually develops, especially someone who has to share these teachings as often as I do, you sort of have certain themes that become really important to you that you see are the critical ones. It's very interesting to me that this first um, sutra in the second book actually really touches on something that's vitally important to me and, and that I see as almost the, almost the constant sort of bottom line of spiritual teaching, which it's nice to have that thought. I'll explain it in a moment. So book number two, sutra number one. Accepting pain as pure, this is, this is the way to samadhi. Accepting pain as purification, study of the scriptures and introspection, openness to the divine will and guidance and acceptance of them, these constitute the practice of yoga. It's very interesting, he just defines it. Okay. Um, I was just wondering where it goes next. Yeah, and then it's a long discussion of ignorance, which we'll save until next year. Um, three points. Accepting pain is purification, studying the scriptures and studying yourself, um, being open to divine will and guidance, and then accepting the guidance that you receive. There's two pieces there. This is what it is to practice yoga. What is yoga? Yoga is 
the art of working with, I mean, this is how Swami defines it in one of his scripture commentaries. Yoga is, is working with the natural um, flow of energy in the body and n instead of trying to repudiate it, trying to cooperate with it. So these points are about the method, given where we are, where we're standing, what we have to do, how do we go forward. So Swamiji writes some really... Um, first he just talks about Hatha Yoga, which I, I don't need to talk about as much. Um, here, it, uh, these, are, these are interesting paragraphs when he starts talking about pain. Pain and suffering are part of everyone's life. The, th the fact that they have normally been experienced by saints and seekers all over the world may be scoffed at by yoga enthusiasts. Yoga, they may insist, should prevent you from having to endure pain. Certainly it is true that hatha yoga is a cure for many ailments. However, there is also the question of karma. And then Swami just puts it very directly here in a couple of places. If you cause people to suffer in one or more past lives, then no amount of yoga practice <laughs> will release you from the law of karma which dictates that you must go through similar, similar suffering in this or in future lives. Wow. Remember how Master talked about meeting a... He met a man in a, somewhere where he was traveling, and the man was a health food enthusiast, and he declared to, to Master that, I cheated St. Peter, he said, meaning I didn't have to go to heaven three times by drinking carrot juice. <laughs> Three times he was supposed to die, but carrot juice saved him. And Master said, when it times comes for you to die, you could bathe in the stuff and it won't make any difference. You know, just there's a limit to what we can do ourselves. There's, there's, and, and what he's also saying there is when things happen to us, when we have struggles and we have to face them, it's not really because you know, I'm, I'm not doing something I should be doing. There is also the law of karma. And then he puts it so bluntly, and he reiterates it on the next page. If we've caused pain in any way in past lives, then we will suffer in this one. Now, I don't think that means... You, it's not necessarily kind for kind, because people have physical ailments, but did they cause physical suffering? Is that why we have physical suffering? I mean, just today I went through an experience where I did something that had one intention, and it was received in another way. And, you know, I, I get the email, and I get the phone call, and it all, it all works out in the end. But you know, there's this natural sort of, um, why are people talking to me like this? Well, because, of course, I've talked to people like this. There can be no other possible explanation. And what I was going to say about one of my own... Um, pet thoughts on the spiritual path and I is that you really can't make any progress until you get the law of karma as I put it down to the marrow of your bones it is, and until you get it just absolutely without any qualifications I remember when Swamiji was teaching super conscious living which is this marvelous system that we, we don't really teach in its pure form as much as we should. It's like so many things Swami did. He made this fantastic creative thing. And then just when we were just beginning to 
be able to relate to it, he made another one. And then we tried to relate to that one, then he did another, and then the third one is just so far back. So he, he made this system called Superconscious Living, which we did this huge run-up to, and then we had this big program at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco, and it was a really big deal. And then Swami stayed in San Francisco and taught it for the summer and started the Ananda House. It was a really big time. I'm going to write a book, and it's going to be in there. Um, <laughs> and uh, But he was part of that course is because it's like the systematic... It's really the whole spiritual path in this beautifully creative, systematic way. One of them is the law of karma. And I remember him talking to this almost a thousand people in the theater there. Many of them were not deeply into these teachings. And he was talking about the law of karma. And he wanted to really challenge the audience, remember? And he, he, he said this phrase, talking about the Holocaust and the Jews and the Germans. He said, the Jews deserved what happened to them. That's what he said. The whole room went... <gasps> Like that. You could just feel it. There was just this wave. And then Swami talked about what the word deserves means. Deserves doesn't necessarily mean that you're punished. It also means that it was a divine opportunity that they merited by the quality of their devotion to God. And I read many years later, one rabbi wrote, the years, those years were the shining hour for the Jewish people because we had the opportunity to prove the, the truth of our teaching. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is no other reality outside of God. And so everything was taken from us, and we got to, we got to prove that that was really who we are and what we believe. I was, that was in, I was in a Christian-Jewish discussion group when that was brought up, and nobody, neither the Jews nor the Christians, wanted to relate to that paragraph. I thought it was so fabulous, I kind of tried to push it to the surface, but nobody was going to go there. But what Swami was doing in that situation, and, and it really it's very important. If it's true anywhere, it has to be true everywhere. If there is such a thing as the law of karma, if in fact all of, we are part of a greater reality, and if that greater reality is like a tapestry in which all the threads are interwoven, you cannot cut any piece out of that and say that this is not part of of the matrix, of the system. It has to be. If anything is, everything is. And that's very challenging. And so what we like to do is we like to just kind of go a little vague. That's what happens a lot with people. You you, you start coming too close to an uncomfortable truth and you just fuzz out just a little bit. I mean, it's a great mistake. This is why... I got the phone calls and the emails I got today because I tend to just like to say it like it is. And that's not always such a good idea. Uh, so, you know, and then sometimes people get really, really freaked out when I do that and I have to be more conscious of the impact because otherwise it boomerangs back. But nonetheless, um, we have to have the courage and what that also means, and this is why, okay, pain is a necessary stage on the path to freedom, and we, and we learn from it. And we learn from it because we have done something that moved us off, and therefore we need to be brought back on. I, I knew a woman who never, quote, never liked to hear her children cry, and she absolutely ruined those children. I mean, they were just crippled because she, she never could 
understand that you have to train children in the consequences of their own actions. How else will they ever know? And that seems to be some of the most difficult things sometimes that parents have is they just can't get this. That you're just not here to play with your children. You're here to show them, you know, the necessary laws of life so that they can grow up and function in this world in a positive way. You're no friend if you don't. Well, we live with the Divine Mother. And all of us, I mean, just, and this is where introspection comes with it, just have the tiniest bit of honesty and look at your heart. You know, today I got to play a whole lot of things out and I got to watch why am I annoyed? What am I actually annoyed about? You know, why would that bother me? I remember Swamiji once, I can't remember the exact, well, I can vaguely remember them, but Swamiji was doing something and somebody made a suggestion to him that was like, it was so obvious. And to even imagine that Swamiji didn't know that was just, you know, indicative of someone who wasn't thinking before they spoke. And Swamiji had, he described it, he just had this impulse to, to make a, re- a response that was actually quite justified in the circumstances. And then he thought to himself, why? Why? Why not just have the humility to be corrected on such an elementary level of, from, by someone who knows nothing? Like, why do I have to respond in anything except graciously? And, you know, he, he mastered his instantaneous inclination and went. His, to be fair to Swamiji, truthfully, he was also thinking of that person. Like, how could you be so insensitive as to not know this? And, but then he realized it wouldn't help him in that moment to present it, to answer him. So he just answered him as if it was a sensible suggestion and went on. But that's always such an interesting question because the question, the word humility, is a very interesting word. Humility, of course, is self-honesty. But humility also means just not feeling it necessary to assert yourself. I was uh, just talking to someone today. There was a woman from many years ago that I had to work with a great deal. And she, she, she pretty much took up all the air in the room. You know, she, she was very forceful. And when she was present, and I was saying to Swamiji that I was having a little difficulty working with her because you know, she was just so domineering. And Swami's response was, oh, he said, when I'm with her, and this is his phrase, I just don't bother to have a personality. <laughs> she has all the personality that you know, we need, so I just don't bother to have one. Meaning he just surrenders to whatever reality she wants to assert. And why does he have to assert the contrary? Where does that impulse come from? And that's the sense of humility that we're talking about. Also, that humility that, why is this happening to me? Well, it's happening to you probably because it's a perfectly appropriate karmic response. I mean, you have a clue by the fact that it is happening. You know, there's your clue. If it is happening, it needs to happen. You have to then think about you know, what is the appropriate response, which is a whole other discussion. I mean, their responses are, Swamiji gives us a whole series of introspection exercises, which are the ideal place to go, but they, um, they're predicated on a level of psychological integration. And so the ego has to have a certain integration before we can um, assume a right attitude. I mean, think how Swami said this. 
mean, he, he said it recently, and I loved it. Oh, he said, affirmations cannot be an effort to run away from reality. You have to be able first to face the reality, and then once you have faced it, you can affirm the right attitude. And what the realities he was talking about is the reality of our own nature. If we want to merely affirm that this has not made me angry, um, we first have to face the fact that indeed I'm very angry. And once you accept that I'm very angry and don't have any, don't run away from that. Now you see, a lack of humility is what causes us not to want to face that, because after all, I'm a devotee. Devotees don't get angry, you know. <laughs> I played that out with Swamiji once, really just in a marvelous way. Over two years, he gave me a job that I couldn't do at all, and I didn't have the. I was much just too young and immature to know what to do about not knowing how to do it. I thought I had to pretend to know how I, how to do it. It was only after I met David that I realized that competent people always ask for help. Only incompetent people don't ask for help. Strange. It was a strange twist of the mind, and I've noticed it since. People who know how to do things don't have any uncomfortableness about saying, can you help me do this? I don't know how to do this. People who don't know how to do things always think they have to know how to do things, and so they never tell anyone they can't do them, and they never ask for help. I've, I've acted it out in my own life to perfection. And I've also seen it acted out in others. I, mean, I was just so amazed. David was so casual about saying he didn't know how to do things and then asking people to help him. It just shocked me the first time I saw it. Oh, what a novel idea. So I had this job, and Swami was trying to train me in it, but I refused to allow him to train me in it. Um, so he just kept pressuring me. He just kept pressuring. He just kept adding and adding. I mean, this was very complicated, and I didn't really know what was going on until afterwards. And I, and I had felt all the way through I had to just have a good attitude. So I just kept saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. But I was, he said I was really angry inside. I don't, I don't think it ever, um, I don't think I ever had the courage to cognize it as anger because that was just too scary to me to admit that I was really mad at him. But I, I had that suppressed, but there was still just all this chaos on the top. I just, because I was so confused and having so much trouble, and then he just kept trying to help me. But finally, I was so out of tune and just so twisted into a pretzel that he took me on a trip with him just to straighten it out. That was, the, that was when he said, that was, we, had, we had this marvelous exchange. Well, actually, that was later we had this exchange, but I learned it from this. How are you? I said, I don't know, sir, how am I? <laughs> that was my standard answer when he would say, how are you? I don't know, how am I? Because I would always, he, he always knew more about me than I knew about myself, so why should I tell him? But, but at the end of that cycle, he said, you know, you always wanted to look like a good devotee. And then he smiled at me and said, but you never fooled me like that. And that was when I thought, oh my gosh, I've wasted so much energy. That with him, it was just like the whole thing just collapsed, and I just thought, what a complete waste of time to just put out all this energy to protect myself from just being myself. I just feeling I didn't have the humility to just be what I was. I didn't have the self honesty just to be what I was. That's complicated. Psychology can be very complicated, but humility is just self honesty. I had, a, I had a lot of capability, a lot of enthusiasm, but I just couldn't admit that I couldn't deal with this. And that's the, 
Um, if, if you can't, if you can't, that's why it comes together when he, he puts it as suffering. The phrase he uses is accepting pain as purification. That's just a very interesting thing that this is happening to me because something has to be washed off. And purification is such the perfect word, you see, because purification means that you're really just fine, but that just somewhere on the way you picked up a little bit of stuff that doesn't belong to you. That's why it says in the Bible, blessed are the pure in heart. You just get rid of everything that isn't, doesn't belong to you. And we, we have this, we get deeply identified with all those limitations. We get deeply identified with all these things and we spend so much energy trying to make them not so. And, and we, we in, the, in the Festival of Light, that, that bird allegory in the Festival of Light is so astonishingly profound and so such a funny little story. But we start out, we're sent out from the divine and we're supposed to go on this long journey. We're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and our mission is to serve God in this way. And then we sort of start getting a little experience. And the bird starts having kind of a good time. This is the soul's long journey, the, the, one of the, last, the end of one of the last sutras that we just did that we didn't talk about quite so much, but it's very important. We're separated from our divine source for as long as we want to be separated. And that's, that also, that's just really hard to really grip. I've been reading a biography of Ananda Ma, part of the series that Shanti and Lahari are doing on Wednesday nights includes Ananda Ma. She was, of course, a, a magnificent saint and very close with Master in Autobiography of a Yogi, the joy-permeated mother. Now, she was so just... Compl- I mean, she was a, a, a realized being, a, I, I can't gauge what her state of consciousness was, but it's hard to imagine more than she had. And uh, she was just so completely pure in, in her relationship to life in every possible way. And I think I'm a serious devotee. I, I think by any measurement I'm a serious devotee. But my, 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 all Ananda Ma lived for was God. And the example of you know, reading about a saint like that, it's not like it's meant to make us feel bad, but it helps us to be realistic about the karma that we have to work out. And it helps us to, to get busy at the right level and, and not um, fool ourselves. I mean, we're very serious devotees. There's no question about that. And I once thought of all of the self-realization people on the planet once. It's like one pat of butter spread across the whole globe. I mean, it's a very, very thin layer. It doesn't... uh, There are not a lot of us compared to how many people are incarnated. And we have very, very good karma. Just very, very good karma. And we must have done a lot of tapasya in a lot of lifetimes to come here and to do that. It's humility to say that. There's no question about it. But we have a long ways to go. There's just, that's also, that's not a sad thing. We have a long ways to go um, compared to tomorrow, but we don't have a long ways to go compared to eternity. Uh, Haridas used to quote, and he said it was from Master, I don't know where, that if 
our lives were a 24, if all of our incarnations were a 24-hour clock, by the time you come to this, you're in the last few seconds, which is just really a lovely way to put it. Hardas had another one that I loved. Whenever something difficult was happening in his life, he would think, you know, if they made a biography of me, if they made a movie of my life, it would probably be about 90 minutes. He said, so this incident wouldn't be more than a second or two. <laughs> Interestingly, just because I'm just chatting tonight, um, when I read a book about a man who was uh, kidnapped in somewhere in the, in the Mideast, and he was actually held captive for seven years, quite something, and uh, held prisoner. And one of the techniques that he had actually been trained in because he, he, whatever he was doing, this was always a possibility, is while you're in captivity, write your memoirs after. So that everything that's happening to you, you're describing in your autobiography later. And so you just kind of stand back a little bit and see what this is like. By under any standard, you know, our lives are deeply spiritual. But still, to have no desire except the desire for God. To be troubled by nothing. You know, well... We have a little karma to work out. And so that karma keeps coming to us. And when we understand that pain is purification and that even the practice of yoga won't cause us to avoid it, but it does give us a way to understand it and to work with us, work with it. I remember this poor woman came to Swamiji for counseling in Gorgaon in the middle of a satsang. She had some difficulty in her life and she kept wanting Swami to give her a different answer than the answer he was giving her. And the answer he kept giving her is, well, aren't you fortunate to be a devotee and to be have a guru and be on the spiritual path so that you can understand that there's a purpose to this? And he would explain that to her so gently and so lovingly, and then she would wait till he was finished, and then she would just dive in with the same question again. Why is this happening? Why does this have to happen? And then he would answer her. He answered her about three times before he gave up. But that's, that keeps us. I was starting to say about the bird. The bird goes out on that mission, and he gets out there. And then, and then he, everybody tells him what's true. But he decides, no, 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 I'm going to make up my own rules. And my own rules are, what else is wisdom if not to keep what is mine for myself? You've told me that I am part of all that is, and I have to give, and I have to share, and I have to identify myself with everyone, but that doesn't really seem true to me. What seems true to me is that I'll just take and gather for myself. And then repeatedly he lost everything he had. I love that. Even though repeatedly he lost everything he had, he just kept insisting that it's not my essential premise that's wrong, it's just that I haven't executed it properly yet. It's what did they say? Uh, madness is to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. Well, that describes reincarnation pretty much, doesn't it? We just keep living according to the dictates of the ego, and we're surprised each time that it doesn't give us perfect fulfillment. So we gather ourselves and get a new body, and we run out and we try it one more time. Swamiji made an interesting comment in something that I heard. He's talking about how everything pulls us outward from our center, and he said even the creation of the baby in the womb you start with the sperm and ovum, and then the body pushes outward from the center. So just being born, and then it pushes outward from inside the mother, and then it reaches out for the world. And to reverse all that momentum and turn the energy and 
and seek our satisfaction and seek our reality inside. And that's, that's no small challenge, which is why repeatedly we keep you know, getting pulled. And so the bird just goes into the state called the revolt. And he gets to have lots of experiences and he gets to test it. He gets to test it as long as he wants to. And then finally, it just dawns on him that this is not working. So he doesn't enter wisdom. He enters the quest. And the quest is such a, a, a marvelous concept because that's really where we all are. are. We, we totter between the revolt and the quest. And the quest is, what is really going on? And we, can't, we don't know what's going on. We might have nifty vocabulary. I remember Swami was scolding this man once, and he, was one, he had this habit of saying, I know, I know, I know, I know, I, I, I know, I know. And Swami finally said, no, you don't. If you did know, you would behave differently. You know, so sometimes we say, I know, I know. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't know. Or else we say, yeah, yeah, I, I know. I, I'm just being stupid. I'm just being stupid. No, you're not being stupid. It's not as simple as that. You know, it's, you spent incarnations getting this complicated. There's nothing stupid about it. If it were stupid, it would be easy to get out of. You can't dismiss it just like that. You know, we've been pushing outward for countless lives, and now we have to be very subtle about the way we understand how do I get out of this. We get into the quest. But every so often, we fall back into the revolt. And the revolt is when it, it whatever it is, happens to us, and we think, no, this shouldn't be happening. This is not really right. It was their fault. I really, I wasn't like that. I didn't do it. It was you who didn't understand. Whatever it might be. You know? And even if it's just a twinge like that. You know, just a twinge where I don't want this to be true. I remember once David had to give me some news. He had to give me an assignment I didn't want to have. And he told me that I needed, that you know, that I don't remember even where the assignment came from. But anyway, I was going to have to do something odd. I can't remember the details now. And he, I was so frustrated by the assignment. And, he's, and he, he was trying to comfort him. Well, you don't have to do this. No, I said, I know that I have to do it. That's why I'm so annoyed. If I thought I could get out of it, I wouldn't feel like this. But that's what it is about all the karma that comes to us. If we didn't have to face it, we would never have had it arrive. But once it's arrived, we just have to, and this is what it says in here, it's not like we can, um, uh, circumstances are always neutral. How we experience them depends on how we react to them. Now, it's hard to think of circumstances being neutral when your relationships crash or someone you love dies or you lose all your money or whatever it might be. It's very hard to think about that as neutral. The ego absolutely insists that this can't possibly be neutral. But it's karma. It's just what has to come to you. And it's because we don't understand. And, and at all times when we're inclined toward the revolt, we have to at least go into the quest. Of course, after the quest is the redemption. When we're pulled out of this material world altogether... Lord, the little light that is in us, we offer to thy infinite light. Make us instruments, make us channels. And that's when we're beyond even wondering what's happening. We just want to be always in that light and always be an instrument that way. 
And so this is where we have first have to understand that suffering, what does he call it? The word he uses, pain. Pain is purification. Oh, okay. This is something I didn't know. This is a seed in myself that I was willing to inflict on someone else. I remember once I was intensely falsely accused, falsely accused of something quite unpleasant. And I, I had not done it at all. I was utterly innocent. Um, but I could have done it. <laughs> and it was a, I could have done it. <laughs> I just didn't happen to have done it. And it was more like I could have done it in a past life. I could feel that the inclination, I wouldn't have acted on the, that inclination, but it was a familiar inclination to me. And I, I just, after first trying to explain that I was innocent, I finally stopped trying to say it. I just felt that I got away with it sometime, and so now I'm not going to. It was just so clear to me. And now think how many times you, you we, get away with things. People get away with things. They just skate by. They say something unkind. They're selfish in some way. We're selfish in some way. We do something that hurts somebody. You, once you get this law of karma, you get so attentive. You just get so deeply attentive. You know, you're in a store and they, they, they make a five-cent error and you get out and you realize they made a five-cent error and you go all the way back, try to get them to fix the five-cent error. You know, you just, you just don't want to set anything in motion that isn't absolutely clean. Because it's just going to come back and hit you in the back of the head. So what is the point? And that's, see, that's the little bird in the stage of the revolt that God had told him to do this, but he thought he could get away with another plan. And he he didn't learn, even though repeatedly he lost everything he had. Every time I say that, I just sort of want to laugh. It's just so valid, isn't it? It, It just, and we're so confused when it doesn't go our way. We just can't imagine why. But accepting that pain is a necessary stage of purification, then must be followed by introspection. Because Swamiji says here, I love this, um, pain in itself, however, doesn't bring spiritual freedom. Now that's a really important point, and that's like a departure from uh, the, 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 the fact that Christianity has made the crucifixion the symbol of Christianity instead of the resurrection. I mean, they could so easily have made the resurrection the symbol, but instead they made the crucifixion the symbol. So it's the suffering of Christ that is the focus of what we think of. And, you know, in the, in the worst aberration of this, the more you suffer, the more spiritual you are. And we're, we're moving out of that. We certainly don't do that. But it's, it's in the ether. It's in the water, the air that we breathe. It, and so that, but Swamiji says, suffering itself does not free you of anything. It's only when you take it in the right way that the karma gets balanced. Because if you don't take it in the right way, yes, I mean, some things come back to you, but then you just create another cycle with it of resentment or wrong understanding or thinking that God owes me or thinking that uh, if I suffer, then God will love me or if I suffer, it just you know shows how devoted I am. But joy is the infallible sign of God's presence, not pain. Uh, I remember uh, when I was uh, 
they, they have a, a word for it in Catholicism, overscrupulosity, where you just start really feeling that um, God wants you to give up everything. You become just, everything becomes like a concern. And I, I fell into it at one point. And I remember Swamiji, and I always, the word I always use is he pleaded with me, which is an odd uh, phrase to apply to him, but that was the vibration that I got from him in the sense that he was trying so hard to get me to understand. And the way he put it was, um, being unhappy is not God's will. He said, that's your idea. And that was sort of like, if I, anything I wanted must not be what God wants of me. And the more I contracted and confused and crimped and denying I am, the better. I remember, this is related only, but I had two people in my life, and one I got along with beautifully and one I couldn't get along with at all. And one I adored and one I didn't like at all. And I, they were just the two most important people in my life. Two, you know, two guru bhais. It was just karma, duality just playing itself like, out like a melody. And I said to Swami, this was my... I said, Swami, you see, I, I figured this out. The problem is, you see, not that I, I don't like this one, but that I love this one too much. So I need to love this one too much so that it'll balance out. He looked at me and said, that is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> Fortunately, he didn't mince words with me. <laughs> oh, oh. He said, great love is given to you so that you can understand your capacity for love and that you can learn to learn, you know, to raise all your relationships up to that level. You don't equalize them by lowering one. But in fact, we get into that thought, you see. Something is beautiful and good in our life. And instead of giving our heart to it and, and entering it into it with full joy... We, we think that God doesn't want us to be happy. We don't understand. We don't understand how to be expansive. We try to equalize it by making everything wrong. Pain is a path to purification, but we also have to study the scriptures and we have to introspect or else we don't know what to do with what comes to us. See, that's where it is. Otherwise, it just comes to us and we go through it and we create a whole other set of vrittis and we're just off again. And there we go. And that's where Kriya is such a big help. Because when we try to just work out our karma by living through it, we inadvertently create a whole lot more. It's just, it's a hazard of, it's an occupational hazard of trying to get free that way. When you do Kriya, you're burning it up at the source. And so it's, it's just, it's, it's the shortcut because you're not so likely to get sucked into other realities. So by introspection and by studying the scriptures then, by understanding what the masters have said and why they've said it. I've been reading Swami's books for so many years and listening to his talks, and it's not the only thing that I do by any means, but I just sort of steadily, I had to, um, I came in contact with the conversations with master, um, conversations with Yogananda television series that Swami did, which is on the internet. And you know, so often just before I energize, I'll just click one of those on and just listen to it while I'm energizing. And just 15 minutes, it's just every single time there's a gem somewhere. You know, it's just, he's just always pouring out. And, and the, he, he's a scripture. His books are scripture. It's not just the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita that we read. It's the holy books. And we have to study them. We really have to study them. Because it's, it's just not easy to grasp. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we arduously 
go from page to page and take notes of everything. It's not intellectual. We have to study them in the sense that we have to really try to grasp the point. And whatever teaches us, I mean, the music teaches people. Music is, music is the scripture too, the chants, the songs. I listen to Swami's songs and every so often just one of those phrases, it just leaps out at you. Or, or just even the whole body of work, just there's so many, um, there's just so many different parts to it. But, but, but studying means not only, as I was saying, not only this arduous by the oil lamp with the yellow marker or whatever it is, but study means to take seriously and to listen attentively and, and not just have it pass over our head all the time. And whatever we spend our time doing, that's what we become. And if we really want to be guided, we have to find ways. And if we're restless and have many other interests, it doesn't have to be the only thing that we do. But if we make it a regular, steady part of what we're doing, when I used to teach meditation one classes, I would always, the last class of the series, I, I would always talk, talk to people about, you know, you're very enthusiastic now, but some, many of you will quit. And why do people stop meditating? And there's many good reasons. People stop meditating when it starts working, which I always find the most amusing, because meditation increases your awareness. So you start meditating and your awareness starts increasing. And when you're standing at the top of the hill, you can not only see the far distant hills, you can also see down into valleys you didn't even know were there. And you start becoming more conscious of yourself and who you are and what your life is. And sometimes don't want to know that. Let's just go back. Unconsciousness was more comfortable. But for this discussion, one of the reasons people lose momentum on the spiritual path is because they don't keep refreshing their understanding. They learn a certain amount and then they stop learning. They stop studying. They stop attending satsang. They stop drawing energy in. And if you don't keep drawing energy in, you, you don't keep going. Just in whatever random haphazard way you do it. I mean, I'm at the point where just random haphazard. I have all Swamiji's books and all of Master's books and I just always try to keep one of them going. You know, it may be in between other things that I'm reading, but I always just try to keep one of them going. And it takes energy to do that. But if you do it, and I keep the tapes going, you just keep it going. You study the scripture, and then you introspect. You ask, how does this relate to me? You listen for that, which is, which is your message. It's, I mean, it's, how many, how could you say? It's trillions of words, trillions and trillions of concepts, gazillions. And so it's not like you could even understand all of it. But you just find that little part that really means something to you. And even as I say, even if it's just the lyrics of one song, that you just sing that song over and over again. I remember once Swamiji, someone was having a difficult time, and Swamiji had me tell them, sing this chant. And I just went and I said, Swami says to sing that chant. And the person told me later they sang that chant, oh, they sang that chant thousands of times. And it just, it became the 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 anchor point for what was needed to understand. It wasn't sing the chants, it was sing this chant. So be very uh, introspect. Figure out who you are and figure out what you, what you really need. When uh, on several different occasions when I was with someone who was dying, several, I'm trying to think whether several is the actual right word, maybe three, I suppose that's several, um, 
excellent to do when you're in with someone dying, with, who's dying, if you can, is to play Swamiji chanting Om, because the Om vibration is like a, the transition between this world and the spirit world. So the dying person will feel that and tune into it. It sets an extraordinary energy in the room to just have that Om tape playing. But even people who have no connection at all to what it is will feel it in the room. But what, what I was going to say about that, in the context in which I have done that, um, it's amazing what scripture that, that mantra is. You know, you just hear it just over and over. You hear Master chanting, that, that loop tape we have of Master chanting, Om, Om, Cosmic Beloved. And you just hear that, and it tells you a lot. And then you, you have to, but you have to pull that then into yourself. So that it's not just on the surface, but it goes way into your heart. Why do I get angry? Why am I not able to accept this correction? You know, why do I feel that people are mistreating me? Why am I disappointed when what I thought was mine didn't come to me? Why am I upset because people are behaving the way they're behaving? People are so um, original. Have you noticed that? Every time I start to even become slightly, you know, why are they doing that ish? I think of Swamiji and all the people in the world. I mean, not just in this country, all over the world that he helped and put up with. And I think of the ones I know and I think of myself, just how patiently and how completely he, he just saw the necessity for each of us to unravel it in our own way and how powerful that is. And we just have to keep, we have to keep coming back to that just over and over. This is the only way. The only way to get there is from here. And if this is here for me, then the only way to get there is through this. The karma will come to me exactly what it is meant to. And it's always neutral. Just depends how I take it. Okay, let's take a little break. I, I guess this is just because the class doesn't seem to have a super specific topic that but it's, it is on topic. Um, I guess I was wondering, um, recently a, a friend has helped me with something that I didn't really know needed help, but it was one of those things. And it brought to mind um, a word that I've heard a lot, used a lot, but realized recently that I'm not 100% clear on my own definition of it. And I guess I wanted you to discuss it a little bit. Um, it's the word surrender. Mm, I and you're gonna say that. the yeah. idea of surrendering to God specifically, but just, you know, I guess I can understand as far as surrendering to a situation. Some karmic things happen to you, something's going on, you surrender to that reality. But I guess in, in an overall broader sense, how would you, could you help me define that? Recently when I was thinking about the word surrender, I was um, thinking about the fact that what we, surren- what we surrender, I was thinking more about what we surrender because that made it more clear to me. What we, what we surrender is our isolated sense of separateness from the, from the world around us and from God himself. If we're thinking about surrendering to God, we, we have this very strong habit of being in charge and of thinking that I have to figure things out myself and do it myself, and that what I think is right. And that's what we surrender. To surrender is to surrender that. 
that, that little fortress that we've built around ourselves. And that mostly that fortress that we're building around is the revolt and the declaration that this is the way I'm going to do it because this is the right way to do it. And we have even, we even have a right way to relate to God. You know, this is how I do it. This is how I pray. This is how I talk to Master. This is how I do it. And when we surrender, we just let go of all of that. We, we, we give all that up. And, we, and we, instead, we go into the quest and we become extremely still and we try to understand what's actually happening. Not what do I think is happening, but what's actually happening. We give up knowing. We surrender knowing. And in surrender knowing, we surrender the revolt, actually. And we just really want to know what is happening. What does God really want of me? What is the truth about this situation? Um, and th- that's how it... I, I came to that when I was thinking about how it feels to me. Whenever I'm um, not surrendered, I can feel my fortress, my fortress of my ideas, of my willpower. I mean, qualities that are not in themselves bad. It's just that when they're used to assert rather than to attune, um, then they begin to become, they're not your friends so much anymore. Does that help? Yeah, the most important thing is to figure out how to do it. But you, you get a feeling for it. You know, there's, it feels icky. And there's a kind of icky there that you get, you get used to. And you, just, you know you're just... Well, the, the word then, the true word then is ego. But I, or ego is a hard... I don't like it when ego becomes the enemy because we're so identified as egos that if it becomes the enemy, you're always at war with yourself. You have to have a really clear idea of what you're saying. Sometimes it really is the only word for it is, yeah, that's just your ego. That's just your identification with your own reality, and that's what's causing you trouble. But I'm, I'm always a little hesitant to condemn the ego, because the ego is also your friend. It's the one that hurts and then decides to do something about it, too. Icky is great. Icky, yeah. Yeah, icky is a great word. I love icky. There's, I had a whole other spiritual theory, which was... Uh, I came to this at one point when we were like after six or seven years in the monastery and it wasn't actually that God had pulled a bait and switch on us. That wasn't really right, but it was just a bigger project than we knew, you know, self-realization. We dove into it with so much enthusiasm, having no idea what we were really doing. And we were, as I put it, we had swum really vigorously out toward the island and, you know, toward the, the, the shore, the opposite shore. We were way out in the water, way too far to turn back, but it was way farther to go than we knew. And we were treading water and getting tired. <laughs> and later I, I, I started calling that, and I saw it a lot, the syndrome people had, where they were going towards something they wanted, but it was not coming as easily as they expected. And I called that the icky middle. You have to go through the icky middle in order to get to your goal. And every, every stage of life has an icky middle where you're just trying to sort through it. There's no other word for it. It's very icky, extremely icky, and you're just right in the middle. You can't go back, and you're not at your goal. And the only way you can get there is through the icky middle. And I'd forgotten about that till you said the word, till I said the word icky. That's why I brought it up. Okay, let's go on. Your question, Arthur. Um, I don't know if you partly answered that um, already, but... If you're suffering or experiencing pain, 
um, how can you tell if you just need to surrender versus if you're actually doing necessary tapasya? Well, see that um, I talked about the, the the balance between endurance and creativity, and 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 the answer to that is there there has to be a balance between endurance and merely to suffer pain is not to make spiritual progress. So merely to endure pain is not in itself spiritual progress. You have to respond appropriately to it, and sometimes the response is is courageous acceptance, and sometimes the response is creative solutions. And, and you just have to begin to figure that out. Is That's what Swami was pleading with me. God does not necessarily want you to be unhappy. He doesn't want you to just take this and then just be unhappy and you say, well, this is God's will. This is the crucifixion. The more you suffer, the more spiritual you are. And the more intensely and horrible you feel, the more spiritual you are. But that's not true. It's when you can find joy... But sometimes you find joy by finding a total creative solution to it. There's no inherent value in being miserable. If, and in fact, I, I would venture to say, of course this is my bias, but I think this is, I would venture to say, Swamiji is very creative and very solution-oriented. He doesn't just endure things. He looks at it. He sees this as a problem. He figures out what he's going to do about it. And he always is coming up with new realities. And if, it's, if this doesn't work and if if you're in pain, then let's find a solution. And if there's no, nothing active you can do, then you have to just have a good attitude in the midst of it. But even then, the way you have a good attitude is usually to find a way to do something with it. Um, a friend of mine, her mother, um, had MS for many years and in the end was bedridden. From her bed, she, she designed and made clothes, she made jewelry, she sold things to people. and She didn't need the money. She did it just out of creativity. She remained to the last. She was an artistic person, and she had people helping her, and she had them execute her designs and things when she couldn't do it herself. But, you know, she just it didn't just... She endured it, but she endured it by creative response to it and just found a way to keep um, serving and keep loving. So if you don't know yourself which way to go then you need uh, objective, uh, objective friends who can help you to understand what's appropriate. And that's why we're a community. You know, what is the right response here? What should I do? Swamiji said, Swami was, I'm just trying to think about this. Well, you know, think of SRF with Swamiji. I mean, he had that endless difficulty with them, and he never, he never stopped doing something about it. He never, I mean, almost to, almost to the very last, he was always looking for one more way to, to communicate, to get them to understand, to create something new, to build a bridge. He just, he never stopped. He, he had to endure it, but he never stopped being creative in how he could also solve it. So I think that that, that really is the, an answer in itself. Even when everyone else thought it was just hopeless and just give up, never did. He always had one more idea. Marilyn? I hate to use the word think, but anyway, I've been thinking. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Um, when, when I'm in pain, you know, mm-hmm. like 
say I'm mad at somebody. Right. So then I start figuring out, well, you know, why, why am I mad at this person? And I can start realizing that, that it's something that, that inside of me. And then finally, I feel this, this kind of like love and, and a calmness, and then it can even turn into love. And that seems like the sign that maybe in that one instance I've overcome or I've transcended that one, right. one karmic thing that's happened. And it's, and it's just a constant trying to get back to the, the calmness and the love, right. the expansion. That's so, exactly right. I mean, you, you overcome it by raising your consciousness and seeing it from a bigger perspective. And so all the facts are just the same. It's just that you're looking at the facts differently. Yeah, you're angry, and then you realize, well, he did the best, the best he could with the understanding he had, and what's the point in being angry? That's real transcendence. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of, of I mean, it sounds simplistic, but it, that's all that you need to do is just keep, keep trying to be expansive. That's exactly right. doesn't change the facts, but your perspective on them changes. And reality is faced and seen for what it is, but then your perspective on it changes because you get bigger. As we sometimes put it, you know, if, if it's just this much black, but you hold it right up against your eyes, the whole world is black. If you hold it out to here, it's still as black as it ever was, but you have a whole, you see a lot of other things too. And when you see all those other things, your whole reaction and relationship changes. I mean, the other things that you can see might be, oh, look. The reason he punched me was because I punched him. You know, back in Spain in the 1500s, you know, I, I, I did a, I really smashed up this guy, and now he finally found me. Whop. Okay, that's all right. You know, I'm not going to hit him back because I don't want him to hit me again. We'll just go on from here. We'll smooth it out. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, that's what he says in here. It's not that yoga spares you from pain, but it tells you what to do about it. And it becomes completely different. Chidambara and I were just comparing notes, you know, 30 years later. You know, it, it really works, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does work. And you just kind of get the rhythm after, you know, decades of reacting. You still may react a little, but you, you catch it a lot faster because it feels so icky. <laughs> it just really feels icky. Oh dear, what am I doing wrong here? And then you find what you're doing wrong and you pull back from it. And this is where, I mean, I want to just not forget this, openness to the divine will and guidance and acceptance of them. I mean, the the divine will is very simple. God wants you to be happy. But he wants you to be happy for the right reasons and in the right way. And he wants you to love and he wants you to serve. And that's what it almost always comes down to. Sometimes we're a little confused about the specifics, but if we go back to the, to the self-evident generalities, usually it's not that hard to know. And much of the time the reason we don't get specific answers is because God doesn't care. He doesn't really care exactly where you are loving and serving. He just wants you to want to love and serve. And if you want that, then everything else just has a way of flowing. You don't really have to make a lot of decisions once you make that one. And once you make that one over and over and over and over again no matter what happens. Is that, are you still thinking? Do you have something else to say? <laughs> you when, may. When you said, you said do it in the right way, I was thinking yeah, you can't go buy ice cream or potato chips. Or, well, or, there's, this, there's a lovely little whispers from eternity that says, um, 
take your bubble of joy, and then this is my favorite phrase. I hope Swami didn't edit it out. Take your bubble of joy, whatever causes it. <laughs> That's always seemed very significant to me. <laughs> and then expand from there. And then he goes on to expand it to infinity. But I've always pulled out that phrase and remembered it vividly. Because sometimes the only thing that will lift your spirits is potato chips or chocolate. And I always feel it's better to have potato chips or chocolate than it is to remain below. If it's going to lift you, then that's the starting point. But you have to take your bubble of joy and then you have to keep expanding it. If you, if you take your potato chip bubble of joy and then when the potato chips are gone, you sink again and then you just have to keep going back up, then you're not doing it. You have to use it as a launching pad. You have to, like a little cartoon, you know, boom, like that. You have to be able to go up from there. But on many occasions in my life, I've taken a, um, a very um, uh, low-level solution because the alternative was worse. Retail therapy, they used to call it, you know. Well, I, the choice is either, you know, to lie on the bed and do nothing for the whole afternoon or I'll go over to Sears. I mean, you know, just, <laughs> just because I knew it was better. Because I knew if I, you know, if I wanted to do that, and if I got my energy going, once my energy got going, I would want to do something better. But if I didn't get my energy going, then I would never get off the ground. So that's why the little bubble of joy, whatever causes it, I've always enjoyed it. And I, I think like that. Oh, I'm going up for my little bubble of joy, you know. And then, but I have an obligation to expand it after that. It's always a battle. It's just a battle of the worst. The worst, the best, and the possible. And then you just do the possible. Because if you always do the possible, it's, it's a... I mean, some of the spiritual path gets so simple. It doesn't get easier necessarily, but it gets so simple. This is my worst. This is my best. I just have to do the possible. And if the possible is better than your worst, it's 100% success. That's all. Just keep pushing it. And... Somehow or another, the whole thing works. I mean, we all, all of us who have been on the path for a long time, we just cannot, cannot say it enough times. Just don't quit. There's just one rule. Don't quit. Just don't quit. Don't worry about anything else. Just don't quit. Just keep at it. And you'll suddenly, and it happens like sort of repeated suddenlies, you'll suddenly realize that you have changed beyond recognition. You just, you just, you'll just be stunned by what you've changed. You, and you don't exactly know when. Someone described it to me once like ice melting. It's like there was ice there and then it's gone. And you didn't, you didn't exactly see when it went away. But you're conscious of the fact that it's not there anymore. This reaction, this anger, this suffering, this pain, this incompetence, whatever it might have been, this fear, just suddenly it's just not there. And it's, you know, the opportunity comes for it to express itself and there's nobody home. Wow, isn't that nifty? You're just so pleased. Or you hear yourself just saying things or, or affirming or advising. And you think, whoa, where did that come from? But you realize it's really who you are. The thing about this path, the Kriya Yoga self-realization path, it's not flashy. You know, we just don't, we don't, there's not a lot of bells and whistles. People have deep experiences, but we're just not, we're not all the time talking about 
the walls started shimmering and then the moved out and you know and the masters came parading in i mean it happens but not that often Mostly we just kind of go from day to day. We get together and we have dinner and then we have another kirtan, you know, and then we have a meditation. We just move, move, move like this and then we buy a farm. You know, every so often we do something really exciting. We pay off the temple, things happen. But the change that happens to you is, is when you change, you are completely changed. When it's gone, it's gone. And you just are. It's not like you have this exciting big weekend in which you have this great revelation and now you know and then on Monday it's not quite so bright and Tuesday and then on Wednesday you're just the same and on Thursday you're just like you were before you started. It's like you just keep at it and, and you just become, as I say, in this like I don't know when it happened but when I measure myself against my starting point you just can claim enormous victories. You can make so much progress on this path if you put yourself into it at all. Yeah. I add my testimony to all those who came before. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, I, I just read from Conversations of Yogananda, we read it before we meditate, and the one, um, I think yesterday, it was so, it was just one of those, it was like so exactly what I needed to hear. Um, it was Master saying that... Um, Think of meditating, you know, even if you don't have any meditative experiences or lights or even inner joy, think of it as karma yoga, you know, mm. desire or action without desire for the fruits of action. And um, basically saying you don't know what your karma was that keeps you from these things, yeah. but whatever it is, you know, no sincere effort goes um, unnoticed. Unre- I forget the word he said, but Not, it's yeah. never wasted. That's never sure. wasted. Thank you. Yeah, I don't Thank know if you. that's what the book says, but it isn't wasted. It, it was that idea. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, everything is karma. If you can't do it, you can't do it because of whatever. Swami's told Master, I have trouble going breathless. And Swami said, Master said to him, Swamiji said to Master, I have trouble going breathless. But didn't Master say, that's because you used to talk a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and then Master said, oh, well, you were happy then. <laughs> it's just so like, you just don't know what the conflicting forces are. And there's the worst and the best and the possible. So you just do, the, do what's possible. And that's victory. I mean, it's, it's hard to... That, that's where humility comes in. This is my best. I used to have a mantra when I... It was a mantra from the green trailer. I remember it from the stage of my life. Um, I am a sincere devotee. This is what's happening to me. This must be what happens to sincere devotees. <laughs> because a lot of things used to happen to me. Because I was, I was pretty unhinged for that first decade. But, you know, this is what happened to me. This is how it's manifesting. I couldn't be more sincere. I could be a lot more capable, but I couldn't be more sincere. So this must be what happens to sincere devotees. I found it very comforting. Because it's just, there it is. If this is how it manifests, this is how it manifests. It was very comforting. I mean, I haven't remembered it recently. I'm sort of in that moment, the icky middle, and the icky middle and the sincere devotee mantra were all part of that, the green trailer era of my life. I have, a, I have a very visual memory in certain ways. I think that's a right brain memory. I, where If I can see the place, I can remember all the sorts of things. I can see myself going in and out of the green trailer and talking about these things outside the green trailer. <laughs> 
Okay, any other questions or thoughts? We're sort of in a lighthearted mood tonight, aren't we? Okay, let me see what else. Oh, here it is. This is the last one I wanted to say. Um, So remember, Swamiji says, yoga doesn't free us from our karma. It frees us from susceptibility to whatever suffering karma might otherwise cause us. We're not susceptible to the suffering. Isn't that interesting? Karma karma doesn't oblige us to suffer. Ah, very important. It merely obliges us to experience the ups and downs we caused others to go through in the past. Isn't that an important distinction? Karma, yoga doesn't free you from the karma, um, but it frees us from the susceptibility to suffering. And karma doesn't oblige us to suffer. That's a, such an important point. Merely because this is happening, I don't have to suffer. It merely obliges us to experience the ups and downs we caused others to go through in the past. Swamiji, when, he was, when we were in the middle of the worst of the lawsuit, and people were just, it was savage. It was, it was ugly. It was really ugly. And he uh, went off to Hawaii just for a couple of weeks. He just sort of had it with the whole thing. And he wrote to us and told us after he came home, he said, I thought it was enough to accept um, what was coming to me. He said, but I realized I had to love what was coming to me. And he said, I, was, I also had to you know, accept the people who were doing this to me. No, no, I had to love them. I had to love everything about this experience. Because it's all coming from God. And it's all, for, all, it's all for ultimately for good. It wasn't personal karma for him, but it was something he took on for many reasons. You have to love the experience. I mean, really think about that. Even if, if you can imagine or if you're going through something that's really difficult, to just love, love it. Oh, isn't this wonderful? Look at, look at what a mess the whole thing is. I was dealing with someone once who was having relationship troubles, money troubles, health troubles, and people in their life are also suffering. I said, wow, this is 100%. You're going to get to wipe the whole slate clean and just start over, aren't you? I mean, you know, their first response was hardly, but then they got, the, got it. Like, there's always a bright side. Because, yeah, sure, everything. You, you're getting to reinvent yourself completely. It's just getting, it's a, it's getting scraped. It's a teardown. You know, it's a teardown, and you get to rebuild a new model here because it's all being taken away. It's very hard to embrace that. Um, but there's the worst and the best and the possible. We can go toward it because karma doesn't oblige us to suffer. It just obliges us to experience the ups and downs. Marilyn. When you say to love um, what, what's happening, is it enough just to, to feel love and expansive and just love everybody but not be thinking, oh, I love that person that just, you know, stole all my money? Is, but, but, if I, if, but it's not specific to a person, but it's Depends just... Depends on the circumstance that there's no rule. Hmm. Depends on what's necessary for you to feel free and what the karma is asking of you. If, so, if, if somebody is evil to you and you have to be able to forgive that person, then sometimes you have to forgive that person. If, in general, you, you're afflicted and there's no face to it, 
you can enjoy the affliction. It just depends on the circumstances. You know, there's remarkable stories out of Rwanda of, of because, you know, neighbor turned on neighbor and people's families were um, um, massacred by the people they'd grown up with. And then after all the madness passed away, um, many of those people had to live together again. And you, you hear these just extraordinarily moving stories of, you know, that because somehow everybody knew, because it all happened really close, that you were the one who killed my parents. And there you are in front of me. But now all the madness is over and you're just standing there. I remember Corey Tenboom, who was in the concentration camps in Germany, afterwards meeting one of the really cruel people that she'd had to deal with. And I think he wanted forgiveness from her. I think he reached out her hand and, and she wrote, she says like this, I couldn't do it, but Jesus could. And she just let him lift her hand. And she gave him her hand. That's how you free yourself. Karma doesn't oblige you to suffer. Yeah. Sometimes you can rise above uh, the issue about how you deal with a specific agent of your, your pain or your suffering. Just remember where it came from and uh, try to feel gratitude in your heart about uh, where it came from, namely Divine Mother. Oh, exactly. That's, yeah. specific. That's a good way to put it. Sometimes the specific agent, the one who delivers the message, shoot the messenger. That's not really the messenger's fault. God, uh, God just matches you. He finds, it's, it finds just the right person who is capable of delivering just the right message that you particularly need. And uh, just be grateful that they brought it to your attention. And then by your reaction, you can tell that you have something to learn. And as Swamiji said to me once when I was weeping over my reaction, oh, he said, this is the good news. He said, you weren't putting out any energy to overcome it because you didn't know you had to, and now you do. He's just, I'm, I'm all shattered, and he's just as cheery as he can be and thinks that just some really happy, happy message has been delivered to me by our reactions we can tell. I mean, once, and I will end with this, once you really get the law of karma down to the marrow of your bones, you realize there's no way out. It's, it's as one, woman, one man said about what soon became his ex-wife, she had two ways of doing things, her way now or her way later. <laughs> That's how he put it. And uh, I love that, though, because I think about that. It's like either I face it now or I face it later. There's no third alternative. And, and running away only makes it bigger, Swamiji said. It's not that the karma gets bigger, but by running away you get smaller. And then the next time you meet it, it looks bigger. But it's like once you really, really understand that if I'm reacting, I'm going to have to get over it. If I'm suffering, I'm going to have to rise above it. And it must be faced. And it's happening because I have to face it. And there is no alternative, no wasted thought, no wasted energy, no wiggling around with that. It's just I do it. And even if I do it badly, and even if it takes me forever to do it, there's no choice. There is so much freedom in that. You know, just because we spend endless energy running in circles looking for an alternative. Just looking for a way out. I call it throwing yourself against the wall and hoping this time it'll be a door. 
you know, <laughs> and you just get bruised and exhausted. But when you finally just realize, oh, that's like when I was starting to say earlier when David gave me that assignment and I was so upset. No, David, I'm upset because I have to do it. And if you, even if you are upset, but if you have to do it, it's okay. You know, right now I'm just going to stay in bed, not get out of bed for a month, but at the end of that I'm going to get up and do it because I have to do it. I remember once I was really upset about something and I lay down on the bed to cry. I don't cry anymore. I used to cry a lot. I laid down on the bed to cry, and I was on my, you know, getting ready to cry, as women do. And uh, I thought, you know, when you cry, after you finish crying, your face is all puffy, your eyes hurt, and you're tired all afternoon. And, and then I just said, let's just not do this. And I just got up, just went back to my life. And that was probably close to the last time I ever did that. And once I was upset about something, and Swami said, now don't cry like that. And I, was, I kept my eyes, I had to keep my eyes like that just because I could feel that. But I kept my eyes like that for about a day. And then I got over it. And again, I, I've rarely gone there again. It's like, don't bother. What, what's the point? You know, you're just going to exhaust yourself and then you're still going to have to face it. Swami once made the reference that someone's tears were, he called them angry tears. They were just so angry that they were going to have to deal with this. And he was very, he was very unresponsive to those tears. The revolt, the quest, the redemption. Okay, great souls. That's it for, as it happens, for a while. But we'll start over again, and it will be now when we start over. (laughs) So, okay. This is fun. God bless you all.